After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Hi everyone, it's Mind Rolling, and I have a very special guest today, Ethan Nickturn. Ethan, welcome to Be Here Now Network. Great to be here with you. And uh, this is, uh, aside from, this is my first, uh, although Ethan was part of a live podcast that we did with Sharon Salzberg and Duncan Trussell and David Silver uh, back in November, and that's actually when we first met. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And that was that was quite a quite an occasion actually over at ABC Deepak Theater. So we are very fortunate to announce. I want to before we get into what we're going to talk about here with Ethan. He is joining Be Here Now Network. Ramdas's Be Here Now Network, which you find at beherenownetwork dot com, and he is going to have a podcast that he will share with everybody. I think we'll be able to get it going in a, in a few weeks here, which will be early 2018, February. And it's called The Road Home, which is also the title of one of your books. Just, just describe The Road Home uh, book a yeah. little bit. So The, the Road Home, the, the subtitle is a contemporary exploration of the Buddhist path. And... Um, that's kind of what I'm all about is uh, I, I'm a, a teacher in the Shambhala Buddhist community, which is a, a kind of globalized derivative of um, Tibetan Buddhism. Um, and, uh, you know, but with a very modernized and westernized approach and a very societal approach, the, the sort of highest value in the tradition is how to be awake in the world, you know, even in a crazy world like ours, or especially in a crazy world. Yeah. So, I mean, the road home, uh, there's a lot to be said about that as a metaphor about coming back to oneself or coming back to reality um, and uh, coming back to one's own mind or heart and mind as home. But uh, I think my idea for the podcast is going to be kind of similar to my approach to meditation in Buddhism is to investigate um, it from a very modern standpoint. I'm really interested in how Buddhist thought intersects with all kinds of different, um, you know, modern philosophies or paradigms such as Western psychology, such as art, um, especially such as social justice and activism. So, uh, you know, that's what I'm looking forward to uh, continuing to explore. So mm. I think that's, yeah, that's great. That's what it's about. And that's what it's about for us really is how to share with everybody uh, ways in which we can be more awoken day to day and uh and 
in very practical ways. And, and so Ethan is, is next generation Buddhist teacher, uh, meaning that like I've been real friendly with his dad for a long time, David Nickturn, Nuji, who uh, many of you know of because he uh, has been a big part of Krishnadas's uh, music in the last number of years, producing and playing, and he's at all of our retreats, and he's been on the podcast, and we we try and wrangle him up a lot. Maybe we can get the two of you going here. This oh, is, yeah, that would be yeah. great. Yeah. Be so, like, it'd be like dinner, but at our yeah. house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dinner at Ethan's. So, you know, a lot of times we talk about, when we talk about a little bit about karma and reincarnation, and, and actually I'm going to want to talk to you a little bit about karma today. Sure. But uh, one of the things we say uh, that, uh, of course, the Tibetans and other, even the Hindus in terms of coming coming back, you, you really uh, try and work at it so you, you can get a birth into a dharmic family when you come back through however that manifests itself. There's a lot of differences about how that does from soul to Buddha mind, whatever goes through. And, uh, and look at you. I mean, you landed right in the lap of the uh, dharma couple. So just describe like growing up in that kind of a situation. I mean, I have also two sons, and I think one of them is around your age, late 30s, 40s, yeah. something, late, early late 40s. Late 30s. Late 30s, okay. For, turning 40 this year, so. Uh, there you go. Uh, and so I have two of them. One of them gravitated towards Dharma, and one of them was gravitated towards science and computer degree, you know, all, computer science degree and all of that. So just tell a little bit about, you landed in this amazing family, and... Uh, how how was it manifested for you? Yeah, I mean, uh, so both of my parents, David, who, who you know, um, and uh, my mother Janice were students of Chogim Trungpa Rinpoche, the founder of the Tibetan master and sort of crazy wisdom person who was the uh, founder of the Shambhala tradition. And they uh, had been both studying with him uh, for five or eight years before I was born in 1978. So, um, you know, it was interesting. I spent the first few years of my life living at uh, Karmi Chuling, a, a meditation retreat center in, in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont, a place I still go a lot to practice and also to teach. Um, and then we moved back to New York City where my father was from and where my mother lived. So sort of growing up in New York City as a, as a Buddhist kid, you know, it, it, it was interesting, you know, in a lot of ways, it, you knew that you had access to, you know, having parents who practice meditation. Um, it was, you know, there was, there was clearly a lot there as I was a kid. Um, you know, my parents also had a fairly difficult divorce when I was 10 years old. So it wasn't anything uh, perfect or magical in that sense. And I think sometimes we think when people grow up in a spiritual environment or something magical. But, um, you know, I, I think there's definitely a quality of, of privilege for sure and, and gratitude for being introduced to, to these teachings. I think I was actually at some points, um, because sometimes my parents had a difficult time with each other, actually kind of turned off from their Buddhist practice, at least in uh, early childhood, uh, you know, because you're often turned off by what reminds you of your parents. That's just mm -hmm. part of being human, I think, even if they're doing pretty great stuff. 
And, but in high school, I think I really got interested in reading a lot of the philosophy. And unlike a lot of other things I was uh, reading or getting into, there seemed like there was a lot of room to play with ideas, play with experience, play with what the mind is. Uh, so there was a lot of room to criticize, to rebel in, you know, some of the Buddhist authors that I read in high school, like Chogyam Trungpa or Suzuki Roshi or Thich Nhat Hanh. And, um, you know, I, I uh, started meditating uh, a fair amount in high school, but it was really in college. And I, I joke in my new book that it was uh, uh, after I got dumped from by my first uh, major girlfriend, that's when I knew I was a Buddhist. And, <laughs> you know, got really into it. And, you know, my experience with it um, in college and then post-college was, you know, it was kind of interesting because I was, it was the late 90s, early 2000s. And, uh when my parents had gotten into it in the early 1970s, pretty much everybody was um, quite young, you know, in their early 20s. And then I experienced when I was studying in the Shambhala community as a late teenager, early 20 something, uh, that I, there was nobody my age there, you know, and so just wondering sort of what, uh, what had happened culturally to make the, the Buddhist community at that time kind of more middle-aged. And so, you know, got really interested in exploring it from different perspectives uh, related to culture and music and art related to politics and, and you know, studied Western psychology a bit too. So um, really it took a while to make it my own. And the thing that I'll, I'll give my parents quite a lot of credit for is they were always incredibly supportive of me uh, having my own experience with it. And, uh, you know, as a father of a baby daughter, who's, you know, may or may not turn out to be Buddhist, uh, that taught me quite a lot about how to be supportive, how to offer something about the tradition or the practices that you've received that might be helpful to the kid, but without being a fundamentalist or overbearing. Yeah. 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 Did psychedelics ever play a role when you in, in all of this? Oh yeah. Well, um, you know, I will, I will admit that there was, uh, uh, working with a lot of self, uh, confusion and, and during college, I, I definitely had some experience mainly with, uh, mushrooms actually, where I could, uh, let go of, uh, let go of my boundaries or my sense of self a little bit and explore, you know, that's not really psychedelics are not really part of the Buddhist meditation tradition. Um, because there's kind of, I think from a Buddhist standpoint, there's enough, stuff happening in the mind uh, as it is um, to work with. But I think sometimes when we do uh, uh, explore uh, altered states of consciousness with a good intention, like it can actually uh, teach us something about identity or about perception or about uh, experience. So yeah, definitely, uh, definitely had a few experiences. Haven't, haven't done anything like that recently, but uh mm. But uh, in college, uh, mushrooms were a little bit of a part of my experience for sure. Well, uh, it's a prerequisite if you join the Ramdas Be Here Now network uh, as a podcaster, you have to fly to Maui where Ramdas is and take acid with him. That's part of what we we ask everybody to do. Nobody, nobody told me that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'm going to commit to that on the air. No. We can talk about <laughs> Oh, God help us. I mean, it is, but it is so true. I mean, with, with uh, Ramdas said it best, you just said with the, the kind of opening that happens and an examination of, of your inner self that so easily comes with psychedelics. And it's, it, the teaching is, is certainly valuable. 
But Ramdas said, and I would have to agree with it, and probably many of us who had back in the day, of course, we that was very much part of our lexicon. But he said, I would not have been able, when I met Neem Karoli Baba, I would not be able to have recognized what I did recognize very quickly without having had a psychedelic experience. And so he he felt it was a big preparation for being with, with someone that didn't have an eye, empty mm. someone. And uh, so... Uh, yeah, that that's not uh, something. Never mind deny. I mean, we we have uh, to this day all of us, and you know, like you, I I haven't done psychedelics in some time. Although I did a podcast with Rick Doblin. I don't know if you know who Rick is. Yeah, heard the name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's doing all this experimentation with MDA, MDMA, MDMA or MDA. Anyhow, MDMA. M- yeah. <laughs> And he said to me, you know, all you guys from back in the day, well, you did psychedelics, then you got into meditation, and you haven't done any psychedelics in a long time because you felt that there, what's the necessity doing the practice has is sufficient. But I'll tell you, as you are aging and getting closer to leaving, there is an efficacy, he said, especially with MDMA, uh, to reconnect that part of what what's so valuable, he said, about uh, psychedelics, uh, knowing that the complete interconnectedness of everything that you experience is a good thing, kind of as a reminder, he said. I said, hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> how about we make this deal? I know our my dear friend and, and mentor along the path, Sharon Salzberg, who's also on your podcast network i'll check in with her and if she wants me to do go do acid i'll do it um. <laughs> sure oh god yeah oh and and by the way uh ethan has done uh at least a couple i think wonderful podcasts with sharon uh over the last time and you can check that out on the be here now network as well uh and you know we have real stuff in common uh, sharon being a primary i mean as far as i'm concerned she's somebody I have felt so close to and loved for, for so long. I mean, she was back in India in the day with us, right? So uh, that's that's very, very special to me. And the other is, uh, you you spent some time at Karma Choling, which I knew as Tale of the Tiger back yeah. in... Yeah. So before you were born, we used to go there, Ramdas and a bunch of us, because uh, my father had a farm just over the Vermont border. It was literally, literally maybe a, an hour away, and we would go down there and, and uh, to see Trungpa, and uh, and that's when he he called us names. Though he said, "You loving lighters, what are you doing here?" <laughs> he was always bu- bugging Ramdas. About... He was he was not afraid of of uh, of name calling. I feel like. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, he was so wonderful, and he's been a, a major teacher for many of us, uh, also over the years. And somebody who uh, I've there's a couple of pot you would enjoy. Actually, I'm going to turn you on to. There's a couple of podcasts that we have up there around Trumpa, Trogium Trumpa Rinpoche, uh, and one is Ramdas and he talking, just hanging out together uh, at oh god, it was '74 or something like that at an event that's precious and then one is just Ramdas talking about him and all the flack that he was getting over 
the the lifestyle of of, of Trungpa and, and all of that and and really describing in such accurate ways as far as I'm concerned who who this being was and uh, so yeah you might like that too and the rest of you out there who uh, have heard of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche uh, do take advantage of that so uh, one thing Ethan Ethan has a book that uh, came out last year so it's fairly new. And it's um, it's called The Dharma of the Princess Bride, which is the film that came out in the late 80s, right? I think. 87, yeah. Yeah. So uh, subtitle, What the Coolest Fairy Tale of Our Time Can Teach Us About Buddhism and Relationships. Here it is. Uh, it's a very cool book. I love the way you write. Thank you. And yeah. And I'm going to fess up right away. I never saw that picture. But okay. you know... And somebody said, "Well, how can you, uh, Rachel, is, who works with me? Well, how can you, how can you do this if you haven't seen the picture?" And I said, "You know, I didn't think I really need to as I read through the book uh, that uh, it is not a requirement." And uh, so, uh, but uh, talk a little bit. About, you do say, you know, how pop culture has become, uh, you know, a spiritual context, and, yeah. and that you've used. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so I mean, uh, a couple of um, a couple of origin points. I mean, I mean, it's a book about pop Buddhism. It's a Buddhism. It's a book about pop culture, but mainly it's a book about relationships. And yeah. uh, so, you know, the the context of this was wanting to write after the road home to focus a little bit more on relationships, but to um, to look for a way of talking about relationships, even though I am a, you know, meditation teacher, Buddhist teacher, and I do, you know, talk a lot about relationships. I didn't want to have to approach this from anything uh, that made it look like I'm some kind of relationship expert. And, you know, I make the argument in the introduction that even that term relationship expert is actually a problematic term because relationship uh, you know, is defined as at least two people meeting and uh, uh, orienting to one another and relating to one another. And an expert is, is one solo loner person. So relationship expert is actually an oxymoron. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm not saying that there aren't great relationship uh, helpers or relationship therapists, but expertise is something that I think we often assume that someone else has about relationships. And, uh, so I wanted to try to find a way to open up a little bit about relationships from a Buddhist perspective as a modern Buddhist teacher and practitioner. So that's definitely one theme. I, I've always been a creative writer. I've always loved, you know, modern culture and pop culture. So the other origin of this um, uh, book was my first publisher, uh, Wisdom Publications, I published my first book, One City. They had published this book called The Dharma of Star Wars. Uh, which was really more like a manual of like, what if you analyze the Jedi code from a Buddhist mm. perspective? And I remember seeing that book and saying, if, if uh, I ever do something like that, I'm going to do it about the princess bride. Um, you know, and the, the princess bride is, uh, uh, first of all, it came out 30, this book came out in the fall of 2017 and that was the 30th anniversary. Uh -huh. So, you know, I kind of, that was when I was going to be able to put it out. And I was sort of looking at what, what my life was actually like when this uh, movie came out, you know, it had been a book beforehand, but it was a Rob Reiner movie and um, you know, just a really tumultuous time in, in my family history. That was the year Chogim Trungpa died. That was the year my parents got divorced. 
I was having a hard time in school. Um, and then this kind of ironic, hilarious, postmodern, deconstructed fairy tale, you know, came into my life. And the reason it came into my life was uh, my father, David Nickturn, was best friends growing up with one of the uh, stars of the movie, the actor uh, Christopher Guest, who mm -hmm. plays the the bad guy, Count Rugen, the six, or one of the bad guys, Count Rugen, the six-fingered man. So there was a family connection uh, there. And it just created this book where I was able to talk about sort of the influence of a pop culture narrative, especially an ironic and hilarious pop culture narrative, and how that could influence a modern spiritual life, and then bring that to bear on, um, uh, you know, uh, relationships and and so forth. So, you know, it was kind of risky to, to try to bring together these three elements in a cocktail, which is basically homage to pop culture, uh, memoir, and Buddhist teaching on relationships. But people have said it worked for them uh, really well so far. You know, mm. one person said, uh, this book is more Dharma than it is The Princess Bride, uh, which might be to your point of saying like it works yeah. even if you don't love the movie, which I was thinking about that. I was like, that's actually quite a compliment because if you want something that's more The Princess Bride, I would really recommend the movie <laughs> the princess yeah. bride yeah right. or the book the princess bride and uh so yeah it was it was definitely an experiment in bringing these things together and it allowed me to talk about relationships in a slightly more playful and poignant way without having it to be some sort of pedagogical or dogmatic um yeah. writing because to be honest when people are writing spiritually including myself when it gets a little into that more dogmatic or like i'm going to teach you uh, about yeah. relationships I mean, I, I, I really hesitate when I find myself writing that way. I want to back off. So this allowed it to be a little more playful in person. Yeah, yeah. no, it's great. It, it, the blend is good. It's really good. Uh, yeah, there's no relationship experts. That is for sure. There's no relationship experts. Uh, I want to quote something. It's something that struck me uh, early part of the book. Why do we ever befriend each other? Why? Is there a biological or spiritual imperative to friendship? Do comrades aid our spiritual journey? Or are we better off as many spiritual voices have modeled and taught over the ages, figuring life out in solitude? Perhaps our desire for friendship is a remnant of our tribal days when we had to team up to defend ourselves against neighboring clans. Yeah, well, we have a lot of clans going on today, uh, don't we? So that's a whole other subject. But I'll tell you something. When I read that, I thought of my own experience when I went first time to India. I went back when Ramdas went back to India. I went with him and and some of the people you know. Well, Sharon was over there at the time, but uh, you know Krishna Das, who you you know, and and some others. We gathered around at that time together. We all met up then. Some of us had met at Ramdas's over the two years previous to that, and. Uh, those, the way in which we were sitting with Neem Karoli Baba in in a way of really being bare, our our true selves being bared, you know, if, if that's the right word, uh, that lasted for all of, since that time. There, that group of people, I can meet one of them and have not seen them for years and and I there's an immediate identification between us no matter what has passed what has gone down the pike and 
I count that as being so extraordinarily important in, in um, not just for the, um, the warmth of it, the great ambiance of, of, of it, but for the contribution to spiritual path, to growth, uh, so I and I say to, as far as I'm concerned, also being able to get together with people of like-minded like that. Uh, to me, and I, this is something that I've been told by uh, other teachers is the most important, uh, can be the most important way to to really be able to to move forward. Uh, getting to know oneself better, to move forward, to let go of fear and separation and 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 some of the other destructive emotions and so on. So uh, when when I saw this in the book, I thought to myself, yeah, I, I mean, a, there is truth of the uh, people being impelled to be part of a clan like this craziness that we are involved in with our society now with the polarization through what's happened in the last uh, years, in particular in the last one year. But beyond that, I think that there's a, a really uh, an organic uh, pull that we have to share and be able to, uh, Ram Dass's new book, by the way, which is coming out in the end of the year, Walking Each Other Home. And I think that says it all. Yeah, yeah. So that, you know, after the introduction in my book, the the first section, first three or four chapters before getting into romance and family later on is called the Dharma of Friendship. And, you know, obviously using, uh, there, there is a great friend story in The Princess Bride between Inigo Montoya and the giant Fezzik and, and the, uh, the Dread Pirate Roberts. But, you know, so it's kind of using that to play off of sort of, and using my father's friendship with Christopher Guest as, as sort of like, what is the spiritual value of friendship, you know? And I think a lot of times in a lot of different communities, especially in the Buddhist community, I, I'd say in the West, we bought into this um, very individualized um, version of a path that like, if you're going to have the discipline to practice, if you're going to really wake up, you're going to have to make the choice to do that, which is all true, that level of personal responsibility and really saying like, I want to take responsibility for my own being, my own mind. But we also all exist in, in social environments. And um, the, the research is really from neuroscience, from, from psychology, in terms of how a supportive community enacts one's spiritual progress is, is really quite captivating. You know, we don't actually um, meditate alone ever because we're, you know, we're hearing, you know, when people are like, um, you know, think that they're the only person who thinks a self-aggressive thought in meditation, like I hate myself. It's like, well, look at the environment we live in. It's an advertising environment that's always trying to sell us a better version of ourselves. So if you're thinking you hate yourself, you probably didn't invent that thought, you know? <laughs> and if you had a conversation with a friend that day, which was supportive, that will probably create a more supportive environment in your own mind. And so I think we have to get out of the view that the spiritual path is just about finding the right teacher or finding the right practices and really like bearing down and doing them because 
what really helps is to have uh, to make friendship a practice and to have friendships and community that supports us and and really looking into how that works as a path in and of itself uh you know a lot of times in in buddhist thought you know you have these three jewels that make up the complete learning environment you have the buddha which is the teacher principle and also one's own inner uh buddha or awakening you have the dharma which is this rich body of teachings and practices that we're working with and then you have the sangha which is the community and a lot of times it's like the sangha feels like oh all right i guess i'll have the community you know but in a sense it's really especially in the modern era really it's the most important um it's the most important aspect and, and yeah anyway, buddha said that right yeah he said when when they said which of the three jewels is the most important he said sangha yeah yeah and that's you know in the shambhala teachings which is with its focus on enlightened society you know if you are if you are receiving messages from your friends and from your cohort of positivity you're going to feel much more positive about your own spiritual capabilities and that's just it's sort of obvious you know so talking about how do we actually make friendship part of the path is um you know and that's one of the reasons i love uh dharma the princess bride one of the lesser known things is like it's it looks like it's going to be this classic libertarian uh superhero climax with wesley who's the he's going to storm the castle but actually the hero is completely paralyzed during the entire climax of the movie and it's his friends in this kind of awkward dance who get him back to his princess and uh so i love that notion of a kind of more interdependent superhero collective where no one person is actually able to do it alone um mm -hmm. people forget that the buddha himself had meditation teachers too you know even he didn't do it alone even though yeah. he did it he did it more alone than anyone else which is yeah. why the buddha yeah and he also you quote him saying when he's teaching on compassion and and this to me gets at the core of of what we're talking about now and what's in your book with some friends your shortcomings fade away and your positive abilities grow like the waxing moon hold such friends dear to you dearer than your own body he 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 wasn't kidding around about this right and uh yeah so anybody who's listening out there i th i think in terms of thinking of the different things to do once you realize there is a path and there's a way to get happy and a way to contribute uh certainly getting with people of like-minded and and being able to share is uh in the dharma and in in the deepest part of yourself and as i said we were we stood uh, naked in front of this incredible being in india and I, what I mean by that is everything was so transparent, you no longer were uh, identified with the ego mind. And once you have that with other people, where the real identification of who you are is shared commonly, I mean, it's a pretty fantastic uh, experience. So uh, I highly recommend that everybody find a satsang and find people that... Uh, that really support you in the way that uh, the, this, with the way that Buddha just explained in that little shloka that uh, Ethan had in his book. Um, so you have one chapter. I don't know if it's a chapter, but something I read uh, that I I thought, okay, this is really oxymoronic. <laughs> <laughs> Emptiness and dating. 
I loved it. Can you talk about emptiness and dating? Even? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I talked about uh, the 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 sort of more playful way to frame dating is talked about um, this notion of having a a brutal guru or a teacher who is harsh or, or teaches by sort of um, really sort of abruptly like um, pulling the rug out from under you. And there's all in, in different Eastern spiritualities, there's all kinds of stories of having sort of harsher teachers, you know, in, in Buddhist thought, um, the story of Milarepa and Marpa in Tibetan Buddhism is like a harsh teacher that the, um, in the uh, uh, Princess Bride, the story of how the Dread Pirate Roberts um, becomes the Dread Pirate Roberts is he's basically kidnapped by a pirate who says uh, to him every night, I'll probably kill you in the morning. And so that, you know, orients him seriously towards impermanence, but he ends up becoming this masterful pirate because the pirate's actually training him the whole time uh, and never does actually kill him. And so that notion of sort of a brutal guru, and I talk about my own experience uh, that uh, I never had a, a human as a brutal guru because my uh, main teacher, Sakyang Mipam, is actually, at least uh, in my experience and a lot of people's experience, I know, quite gentle. Uh, he doesn't really pull the rug out from under you. It's more a, a very supportive and insightful environment that I've felt. But uh, that I have had a bru brutal guru in my life, which is the process of dating, you know. And I, think that's, I think that's true of a lot of people. When I talk to folks younger than I am, you know, in the, in the millennial generation, I'm late generation X. It's like the, the notion of just being present and open hearted and, and actually connecting with another person. Uh, feels uh, really uh, damaged a lot of times, you know? And so um, usually what I, the way I was looking at it is how we often play into these storylines, uh, you know, and that especially become uh, powerful narratives that we cling to um, that cause suffering. And these especially happen in, in romantic or dating uh, life or dating aspiration. And, you know, in classic Buddhist thought, we basically have two kinds of storylines. One is a storyline that something is going to save us, that, that something is going to make me permanently safe. A savior is going to come along. And if you look at sort of a, a classic uh, rom-com movie, this, this notion of sort of finding the right relationship, you know, if you study American rom-coms, they're really interesting because usually not only do you get a good relationship, but you also get like a really cool status, you know, in the world. It's like most rom-coms end with a person like who works at a newspaper in New York City, like living in a brownstone townhouse that somebody with their job could never afford, you know? So it's like <laughs> this real sense that romance is going to save us becomes very prominent. And then at the other extreme, there's sort of the extreme of nihilism of our fearful storylines of like nothing matters. This isn't going to work out. Screw it anyway. And so talk about working with emptiness is actually dropping both of those storylines, both the savior storyline and the more cynical nihilistic storyline. And then you just show up kind of as you are, which is a very hard thing to do. Um, and you're not caught up in the storyline. So there's a, there's a Pema Chodron quote that starts that chapter, but uh, the notion of um, being lost on the high seas as being where, uh, where our dating life starts, that sense of really wanting to connect and also maybe wanting to solidify our identity through 
romance and relationship and how that's actually constantly thwarted by showing up open-heartedly and actually having human interactions with other people. So I found it was like, actually, um, you know, I think everybody should have some brutal guru experience. I'm not talking about a traumatic experience, but that experience where our storyline is never met and is never um, uh, upheld. And yet at the same time, we show up and find something really meaningful anyway. And that's, that's, uh, uh, I think, a very healthy, awakened approach to, to modern romantic relationships. Yeah. And as well as everything else. Yes. <laughs> I mean, and people have a lot of trouble with that concept. And we've talked about it. On, I've talked about it on many podcasts with different friends and teachers and about emptiness and the presumption around it being the... Uh, the nihilistic version of it, right. which is really completely off kilter. Yeah. And how you just explained it, it related to dating, which everybody can relate with. And the story that we tell ourselves and walk out that door to meet somebody and, and have a billion stories in our head. And uh, to be able to go out open-heartedly is to be able, if, if you, there should, you should do a whole course seminar just on that Ethan and if you could if you can get through that then you can in every other aspect of relation in your life be able to be open-hearted things would be a lot more more easy and more better yeah I mean I think I find with you know people's presumptions about Buddhism that that notion of emptiness or no self which is related to emptiness is a slightly different philosophical discussion, but that this actually creates a big barrier for people. And, and I think a lot of it is, you know, the early translations that were done by Western academics, like mm-hmm. uh, Herbert Gunther or somebody like that, translated as like voidness, yeah. which has a much more like nothingness quality. But what um, I love the way somebody like uh, Thich Nhat Hanh explains it, that shunyata, the, the Sanskrit word, literally means something like empty of, so when you're saying that something is empty of, you're saying that it's, it exists, at least in a relative uh, way of thinking about things, but that it lacks certain qualities that you might ascribe to it. Like an empty cup is still a cup, but it's without the thing you think might be there. So the, the notion of reality being uh, empty of our storylines about reality is... Um, means that there is a reality there, but we are often presuming so much about the reality through a kind of, uh, you know, really an evolutionary safety mechanism that we've all had as human beings that, that it stops us from actually connecting with the reality fully because we have a, uh, we're, we're ascribing something to reality that isn't there. And yeah. we often ascribe salvation and we often ascribe like some kind of nihilistic or materialistic um, Interestingly enough, like um, from a Buddhist standpoint, because it's not uh, it's not considered a religion this, the same way that many of the Western, at least theistic religions are considered, at least, you know, uh, Chogim Trungpa said that it's a uh, non-theistic religion, religion. But if you study, you know, some of the thinkers, uh, atheism um, from a Buddhist perspective would be considered too far. It's It's a story about reality, right? There is definitely nothing nothing magical going on here. There's no God, there's no um, knowing, there's no gnosis in the universe. And from a classic Buddhist standpoint, at least that would be considered a nihilistic extreme. Yeah. 
No, absolutely. By the way, we talked about uh, on this chapter emptiness and uh, dating sub chapter. It's called Lost on the High Seas. <laughs> Very apt. Uh, I do want to read this Pema Chodron thing. I mean, Pema Chodron is just uh, a staggering teacher, everybody. If you don't know who Pema is, only to the extent that we expose ourselves over and over to annihilation can that which is indestructible in us be found. Eh? A wonderful quote. I hadn't seen that before. Yeah. That's really terrific. Um, can we talk a little bit about you? You do talk a little bit towards the end of the book around karma, mm -hmm. inheriting karma and inheriting wisdom. Uh, we have been, uh, or I have been delving in podcasts of late around karma and the wisdom of karma and, and uh, the cultivation of understanding that can really help us day-to-day uh, -day in terms of the, the extraordinarily subtle acts and motions and thoughts which really uh, go uh, a long way to creating our world and and creating a world that comes to fruition perhaps later in our life or even of course uh, and that's a, a bigger conversation in in an, in uh, another incarnation but yeah just talk about that a little bit about karma and inheriting karma sure. and inheriting wisdom huge huge uh, karma in general is a huge topic the way yeah. i talk about it at the end of this book uh is related to a family lineage and a spiritual lineage what you inherit that you inherit wisdom, but you also inherit sort of habitual momentums. So there's, there's different ways of talking about karma. I really take the approach in the, in the road home. Uh, there's a chapter where I use the uh, um, involved, uh, but hope, hopefully simplified version of a classic Buddhist way of talking about karma called the 12 Nidanas or 12 links in the chain of causation. And I really look at it as sort of like looking at how our habitual patterns create uh, reactions and then create future perceptions and future reactions. Um, obviously, sometimes karma is looked at as, as the more sort of um, spiritual or, or mystical side of Buddhism because there's this notion of consciousness going to future lifetimes, etc. Um, so you could look at it in a very like cognitive behavioral therapy kind of way about how, uh, you know, our reaction to Donald Trump creates our next reaction to Donald Trump, et cetera. Um, or you could look at it as like, who, who was I two lifetimes ago, you know, and classic Buddhism looks at it both ways. I think that it's important to acknowledge. Um, I think it's important to uh, be open to the idea that um, maybe we don't uh, understand everything about causation from a materialistic scientific perspective. Like if you're, hanging out with a seven month old baby as I am every day these days, there's more than seven months worth of stuff in there, you know, yeah. and it's just so obvious, you know, from a just observational perspective. Um, but, you know, I think the important part either way is that there's some study of how cause and effect works and especially how cause and effect works within the way that we perceive ourselves and perceive the world. Um, and so karma, I think sometimes it's over, um, uh, it's over explained. I think the Buddhist view of karma is really directly related to how our mind perceives events. 
right? Even though the word itself literally means action. So for example, if it's raining today or cloudy, um, then some people would say, well, that's your, that's your karma. And I think that's not actually true. It's just, <laughs> it's all of our karma. It's the planet's karma. It's the clouds karma that that's happening. But two people, you know, given their pre previous experiences and just their state of mind, one might say, Ooh, it's raining. That's kind of cozy. I should take an umbrella. And the other person might be like, Oh my God, it's raining again. It's cold. I can't believe this. Why didn't I move to Florida? It's so much better there or, or Maui, you know? So given the same external experience, our mind is conditioned to sort of overlay different filters onto it, you know? So that's another way of thinking about karma. It's like the Instagram filters that we overlay onto an experience that changes the perception. Yeah. And so realizing that we have a filtered perception uh, and that there's leaving space, what's called the gap around that, is what most meditation uh, 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 techniques work with in different ways, you know? So obviously just realizing that we are uh, having a story about reality that's not the same as the direct sensory perception of reality, that's a great start, you know? Um, realizing that we uh, uh, are, uh, maybe our story is particularly negative or particularly blissful, you know? So that's an interesting one where we just, we want to make everything positive, even when it's painful. So I think that's a, that's a start of looking at karma is just sort of how we plant based on our previous reactions, how we've planted seeds that filter our direct perception of the present moment and how that creates responses and maybe reactivity in the future, which either reiterates the seeds we planted or plants new seeds or um, liberates the seeds. Um, so all of that is within the study of karma. But I think the, the humble way of looking at it, which is a really important first step, is to realize that it's not the world out there. Like we actually um, have some um, say in it. As one of my uh, friends and mentors, Dr. Miles Neal says, karma is the, uh, the, the realization, and this is only partially true, but it's a good start. The world is not coming at you. The world is coming from you. Yeah. And I think when you started out talking about this, you started out talking about the relationship with habitual patterns. And I think that that's extraordinarily important. And uh, when you start to realize the creation and the feeding of uh, habitual patterns in your life, uh, you start to really understand the, the, uh, the depth at which one can be affected by these acts that we are doing and not just and subtly too not just okay i whack some guy in the head and i'm angry all the time and i'm beating people up i'm talking about uh just the thoughts that enter our minds that we entertain uh they go a long way to supporting these habitual patterns um right. and yeah I just want to add one thing because I, I think there's been, especially with the political environment, there's been a lot of great work done recently about how, um, you know, if you just looked at karma as a completely individualistic enterprise, like each of us inherits our previous karma and that's all that's happening. Uh, we're not affecting each other at all. If you took that approach, then karma could just be a way of explaining the world as it is, you know? Uh, 
a billionaire is a is a billionaire because they have that karma. A slave, you know, or a sweatshop worker is that way because they have that karma. And you could get into this really problematic way of looking at karma. So we're not saying that we've caused our way of thinking. We could have inherited um, uh, beliefs or storylines from our society. We could definitely have inherited them from our parents, which is, you know, the big part of what Western psychology is, is looking into. But what we're saying is to take responsibility for the fact that the seeds live in one's own consciousness. And we have to at least do some of the work to see like, oh, I am perceiving things a certain way. And therefore, I'm going to work with that, you know, mm -hmm. and, and that's, that's where the personal responsibility is. But a lot of times people take explanations of karma as, as saying like, so you're saying my suffering is my fault. And it's no one's fault, actually. Reality is quite interdependent. There's no, there's no one there to blame, actually. It's, mm -hmm. it's an ongoing process of consciousness. Um, but what we are saying is like the, the individual consciousness is the one who can start to work with it. And that's where uh, having a path becomes important. So I just wanted to clarify because I think there's a really important conversation about how a lot of Eastern teachings could be used to just support this sort of um, libertarian on steroids approach that's become kind of dominant in Western thought that allows um, certain people to take up so much airspace in the world, not to name any names. And uh, <laughs> so I think we have to look at personal responsibility for karma in the context of what are spiritual people doing to actually look at the, the culture and society that we've co-created interdependently. Yeah. And, and that's always a, a big problem that people don't want to uh, embrace the totality of what we have created collectively there's a collective uh, karma for sure yeah. and when we are part of that and um i i see you on facebook i follow you and i i see some of the things that you write <laughs> you're very um very much here and now with what's going on in this country and speak your mind about it and uh which i love and it's a very, very delicate thing. I mean, I have um, back and forths with Ramdas, who keeps Trump's picture on his altar, so that he can relate with with that true nature behind this what he calls rotten incarnation <laughs> that we are all living with. And and I push back at him all the time, and we we get into it in terms of, oh, okay, I'm I'm not putting him on my altar, okay. Uh, this is just a, a nasty situation and uh, you know and I get and my ire gets up and then and it I'm from Canada okay and that's my excuse for uh, looking askance at, at, at what's gone on in this country but I'm also I'm a dual citizen so I have to be responsible as well so yeah we are responsible and we need to know that and we can there, there's uh, been some great uh, one great article I read in the Times so some months ago or a couple of months ago, we are getting what it is we created collectively over a long period of time. And uh, I think that uh, we have to be real about it. Yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes people come to these spiritual paths when there's a moment of sort of realizing like that, that, one is sort of, uh, I don't want to say hits bottom, you know, but there's, 
something manifests in your own life that is um, something falls apart or some sense of self is completely challenged or you just uh, um, you do something like you have an uh, an angry moment and you realize like I have to I have to work on myself you know and I think I was watching actually Dave Chappelle you know stand-up comedians and yeah. garment teachers have a lot in common and yeah. he was comparing um, the death of, you know, in the civil rights movement of Emmett Till and how gruesome that was and, and what an awful moment and the, the woman who lied about him looking at her a certain way and he ended up getting lynched and how powerfully negative a moment that was to lead to the whole civil rights movement. And he ended up saying like, but, but America had to see that level of gruesomeness mm. to want to do something mm. about that. And he said, I think the election of Trump is similar, you yeah. know, that gruesome as a lynching which yeah. that's dave Chappelle saying that that's not me saying it yeah <laughs> but there is there is something about the narcissistic white maleness of it all that is so uh caricatured so inflated that it is showing us something of the world that we've created now you could say well whatever i voted for bernie sanders or i worked on barack obama's campaign twice or i'm from canada i like justin trudeau or whatever yeah. whatever you want to say but we we are <laughs> part of this to, yeah. if you're perceiving it then you are at least implicated in it you know it's yeah. nobody's fault but if you're that's another rule of karma if you're perceiving something you're implicated in the situation at least yeah. and you need to at least show up for it yeah no absolutely well said uh what we're going to we're going we're at the end of our time here uh, but there was, we'll have to do another one because there's so much stuff in this book that I enjoyed and, and wanted to just, uh, chat with you about a great book, the Dharma of the Princess Bride, Ethan. Thanks Nickerner. so much for reading it. Yeah. And it'll all be on, uh, you'll be able to link to it and buy it. Uh, you'll go to, uh, be here now, network.com slash mind rolling, and we'll have the show notes and the links and all of it. And, uh, a link to, uh, Ethan's website and but there's one thing that's here's one thing that I want to get with you at another time. Uh, there's a chapter or or some pages around family, the last frontier of enlightenment, mm -hmm. right? And uh, this is something Ramdas has a famous saying: if you really want to find out where you're at spiritually, go home for a weekend, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. and I know that you there's a similar uh, vibe in the book to yeah. just that. So. Well, well Chogim Trungpa said uh, uh, it's possible you could become enlightened everywhere except around your family. Yeah. <laughs> One of my father's, uh, my favorite quotes by him is, uh, the reason your family can push all your buttons is because they installed them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yeah, yeah, that's, that's the last section of the book. And it's, a, that's a, you know, it's a powerful discussion to just, again, I think a lot of what's going on now that, uh, is meaningful to me is just people starting to talk rather than sort of, uh, bypass or have these sort of platitudes about what spiritual life is to really talk about how things work for them. And, you know, I think there's a lot of movements that are just like, we, we need to talk about our, our issues. And so, I don't know that enlightened family is going to be possible tomorrow for everyone. You know, even if your parents are Buddhists, your dad's a Buddhist teacher, uh, beloved by you and many others, there's still going to be issues, you know? So, um, and just like my daughter's going to have issues with me. And, and so, but I think that, that 
I'm hoping, and I think what's what I see happening that's very positive in the world right now is this sense of like, let, can, let's just get real about our spiritual lives. We don't have to pretend it's other than it is. And, and that, that feels really inspiring to me. Yeah. And we didn't talk about that. Getting real with Sharon. That's a whole topic that, uh, you know, remember in the thing I said, yeah. okay, you got to write a book about this, Sharon. And getting real is certainly part of all of this. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, I really appreciate you being here, Ethan, and, and really welcome to the network. And we look forward to uh, you sharing with uh, everybody your insights. And uh, uh, yeah, till next time, this is uh, Mind Rolling on the Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and uh, we shall see you next week. <laughs>